0: Well, once again, good morning. Good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, Chapter 6? John 6. If you're new with us, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. We find ourselves this morning in John 6, and uh, we have been studying in John 6 one of Jesus' most important teachings, uh, what's called the Bread of Life Discourse. The reason this message It's called the bread of life discourses because in it Jesus Jesus reveals that the manna that fell in the wilderness in the days of Moses for those 40 years that sustained Israel physically, Jesus, it was actually a type of himself. Psalm 40 verse 7, the volume of the book, it's written of Jesus. We know that. But uh, Jesus said that the manna really pointed to him. It was a type of him. And uh, just like the manna came from heaven, so did Jesus, the bread of life, the true bread, as he called himself. But, of course, this bread, pointing to himself, wouldn't sustain people physically. It would impart spiritual life to them eternally. Now, once again, guys, I've divided verses 22 through 71 of John 6 this way. The physical preoccupation of the multitudes, the divine declaration of the Savior, the carnal condemnation of the Jewish leaders, and the strategic separation of the true disciples from the false. Now, we've been spending a lot of time with the second one, which we're in this morning still, the divine declaration of the Savior. The other ones are not going to be anywhere near as long as that. But this one really has a lot we need to focus on. Uh, and uh, so we've been looking at it. And under that main point, the divine declaration of the Savior, we have seen three sub-points. First of all, the source of eternal life, Verse 35, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. He is the source of eternal life. Then we saw the skeptics of eternal life. Verse 36, but I said to you that you have not, excuse me, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Now, if you weren't here, we're for just kind of recapping a little bit. You can go online and get the full treatise of, of, um, uh, what we've been in so far in the second main point, looking at these other points. I don't have time to get back into them and explain them uh, again, but i am just throw it out to you so that you know where we are. The source of eternal life, verse 35. The skeptics of eternal life, verse 36. And that then brought us to the security of eternal life, starting with verse 37, where Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose, excuse me, nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day again we're just reviewing from last week but the it in verse 39 is a reference to all believers as a group all believers we call that group the church or the body of christ every true believer is a part of this group and as we said last time and what jesus is saying right here this entire group you got to see that this entire group will make it into heaven without losing a single Christian. He said, the Lord Jesus, that I should lose nothing. The Lord Jesus said, this was the Father's will. All who come to me, I will accept. I won't cast any out. And the whole group, it, is going to be raised up someday, rapture, uh, into heaven. That's his promise, right? And as we said last time, here in these verses, the Lord Jesus Christ states in some some of the strongest terms in all the New Testament, Now, once a person puts their faith in him and receives eternal life, that life is eternally secure. And, of course, at this point, someone would say, you know, yes, but only if I'm faithful faithful to keep it, right? Well, folks, that's how many Christians view eternal life. That it is theirs as long as they are faithful. In other words, eternal life is only eternal if they hang on to it. By keeping God's commandments, going to church, living a holy life, if they fail to do these things, then they lose their salvation, or at least that's what they believe. The question is, whom is holding on to whom? That's the question, okay? When it comes to eternal life, Whom is holding on to whom? There are two basic groups that people fall into on this subject. The first group believes we hold on to Jesus, whereas the second group believes that he is holding on to us as Christians. Let me illustrate this using Noah and the ark. In Scripture, the ark of Noah is a type of Christ, which saved believers, of course, Noah and his family, uh, saved them from the judgment of God that had come upon the whole world, the flood and uh, so we see uh, the ark as a type of Christ. And uh, let me just read you, you have to turn around. Let me just read you Genesis chapter 6 verses 13 and 14. and God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence through them. All flesh had corrupted itself. And behold, I will destroy them, all the unbelievers, uh, with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. Now, the ark is a type of Christ. It's interesting that J. Vernon McGee said, uh, "Love him, great commentary with the Lord now." But gopher wood, he said, is in. Almost indestructible wood, very much like our redwood here in California. So the ark was made of something that was super strong. Christ, of course, is infinitely strong. Right? Uh, interestingly, the word pitch comes from the Hebrew word kaphar, from which which is translated in other places in the New Te- uh, the, Excuse me, Old Testament uh, atonement. To me, that is significant, guys, because I, I really see the Holy Spirit is using the ark to represent. Listen. Our position in Christ. In fact, some have said that the ark is one of the, most, one of the clearest and most comprehensive types of the believer's salvation in Christ that you're going to find anywhere in Scripture. Let me give you a few points. I mean, there's many others. I'll just throw out some of the more obvious ones, okay? First of all, looking at the ark as a type of Christ, the ark was a place of refuge and safety from God's judgment. Inside the ark was life, outside the ark was death, just like being in or out of Christ. Number two, God said to Noah and his family, Come into the ark, not go into the ark. It was an invitation, not a command. Even as we are invited to come to Christ, he's, the Lord Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God never forces us to be saved. He only invites. Number three, the ark was a place of absolute security. God told Noah to put pitch, which is like a tar, on the inside and on the outside of the ark. Very important. This would have, listen, completely sealed the ark from the waters of judgment, the flood. In other words, guys, inside the ark, there was complete safety from judgment so no the ark didn't leak years ago I bought my at that time my daughter wasn't born my bought my two young sons a, uh, a video series for kids and produced by a good Christian company and one of the stories was no in the ark right so we're watching it and having a good time it's cartoon format right and they get inside the ark and the floods come, and all of a sudden the ark starts spring, springing leaks, and Noah's running around putting his finger in it. I'm thinking, you know, you folks just destroyed a great type. Christ doesn't leak. <laughs> the ark is the type of Christ. You got the ark leaking. What does that say about Jesus? But look, the ark was the, look, the ark was the only hope back then. To escape judgment there was no second option right there wasn't the ark plus these other ways you could be spared from the uh, the judgment of god right the ark was the only hope of rescue from the judgment of god in noah's day uh, of course today there is only one way of escape uh, from the judgment of god coming upon this whole world uh, in the future And that is by applying the blood of Jesus to your life, which seals you in Christ safely and securely until the day of full full redemption. Read Romans 8. That will be the rapture when we are fully redeemed to get our glorified bodies. It also tells us in Genesis that God, God shut the door of the ark, sealing Noah and his family securely inside. God shut the door. Interestingly, the Holy Spirit makes the point to tell us That one year later, when Noah and his family and all the animals that entered into the ark, they all came out alive. Makes it a point to say that in Genesis. Every living thing that entered the ark came out alive. None were lost, and they all exited to a brand new world. Just like Jesus said, You come to me, I will never cast you away, and I will lose no one. All those who enter Christ for salvation stay in Christ for glorification. Number four, the ark had only one door. Jesus said, I am the the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. If anyone tries to enter into heaven any other way, the same as a thief and a robber. He also said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Number five, we're told that the ark had three levels in it. This relates to the fact that our salvation in Christ is threefold. First of all, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We're not going to hell. Number two, we are being saved from the power of sin. That's what sanctification is all about. Read Romans 6. And eventually we're going to be saved from the very presence of sin. The Bible makes it clear to point out in the new heavens, new uh, earth, new Jerusalem, sin won't even ever enter it. So we will eventually have an existence where we won't be in the presence of sin ever again. So guys, Noah and his family in the ark were a type of the believer in Christ. Now look, some people have a theology of salvation. That's as though Noah was told by God to get all the animals and herd them into the ark, and him and his family... Enter into the ark, excuse me, that that God told Noah that uh, he was to build the ark, put the animals inside, and then, listen, make pegs on the outside of the ark for him and his family to hang on to. And if they were strong enough and were still hanging on when the flood was over, well, then and only then would they be sure they had made it. And that's how many Christians seem to view their salvation. If I can hang on to Jesus until I die or am raptured, I've made it. But listen, God shut Noah and his family inside the ark, just as God sealed you in Christ with the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. Look, Noah, I I don't think Noah could have gotten out of that ark if he had wanted to, but it's a moot point. He never would have wanted to. Because he knew outside the ark was certain death. The waters of judgment. Why in the world would he ever want to get out of the ark? Just like why would any true Christian ever want to leave Christ? The fact that he was sealed in that ark didn't make Noah, I'm convinced, feel trapped. It made him feel secure. Just like I don't feel trapped in Christ because I've been sealed in him by the Holy Spirit. I feel secure, okay? And remember that God said to Noah, come into the ark, not go, indicating that God was inside the ark. Listen, if the ark had sunk, it would have sunk with God inside signaling that God couldn't preserve those he had saved, and that's ridiculous. In fact, it's so ridiculous, Paul points this out in Romans 5, verses 8 to 10, with an argument that goes something like this. If Jesus Christ could save us by his death, can't he do the greater, which is keep us saved by his resurrection life? You can read it, okay? The idea that Jesus can save me, but just can't hold on to me, it's ridiculous. And Paul picks up on that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans 5, and says, look, if he could save you with his death... How much more glorious and powerful is his resurrection life? Can he keep you saved? Is the idea. Now listen. No doubt during the flood, as the ark was tossed to and fro, Noah fell down many times in the ark. But he never fell out of the ark and perished. He never fell out of the ark and perished. Even so, You will stumble many times while in Christ on this earth. But you'll never, ever fall out of Christ and perish. I believe Jude made a point to say this. Jude, verse 24, Now to him, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was able to keep you from stumbling. And the context is stumbling out of Christ through sin and being lost. Now to him was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless someday before his presence with exceeding joy. You, Hebrews ten fourteen he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. We're a work in progress on the earth. When the horn trumpet sounds and the Lord shouts and we're zipped up to heaven in the rapture, uh, everything is going to be completed. The work he began, uh, Philippians 1.6, he is going to complete at that moment, and you and I are going to be made perfect uh, outwardly, even as we've already been uh, redeemed inwardly and are, are perfected inwardly. Uh, but the idea is someday he's able to keep us from, from stumbling and being lost, and someday he's going to present us faultless, blameless, sinless, before his presence with exceeding joy. That's because he already cleaned, washed us. He uh, sanctified us. We are made holy and perfect in his sight through Christ. So, guys, once you uh, come to Christ, you are sealed securely in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And you and I are guaranteed to never come into judgment but to have everlasting life, which means that you are saved. I'll read you two verses because we have a lot to cover. Ephesians 1, verses 13 to 14. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Listen, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. If you've got the Holy Spirit in you, it guarantees You're going to be taken to heaven someday. Well, what if I sin and the Holy Spirit leaves me? What did Jesus say the night before the cross? He will never what? Leave you nor forsake you. You have the Holy Spirit, and all true Christians do, Romans 8, 6. All Christians have the Holy Spirit in them. And he is the guarantee of the inheritance, Paul said. Until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praises of His glory, the Holy Spirit is a, in fact that Greek word uh, guarantee could be translated down payment, earnest money. The Holy Spirit was given to us to prove God is in earnest about purchasing you completely, and I, and that will happen at the rapture, our full redemption, and glorification. John five twenty four. Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has, has, not is working toward, has everlasting life, listen, and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. There's not a caveat there. There's not, oh, if they don't blow it. it's It's an unconditional promise. And yet, Many Christians still believe because they're being taught that eternal life is only eternal as long as we, Christians, hold tightly onto Jesus. If our grip fails, so does our salvation. Yet none other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself said that we aren't holding onto Him for salvation. He and the Father are holding onto us. Turn to John 10. We will look at this in detail when we get there in a couple of years. (laughs) But uh, I love it. It's a beautiful uh, passage with regard to the subject where Jesus said in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice. I know them intimately and they follow me and I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall any anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one and again, i and I keep hearing those in my mind, people saying, "Yes, Jesus gives us eternal life, but I have to be faithful, or else you know I lose it. Jesus, anticipating that response said. And I give them eternal life, and quickly follows it with, and they shall never perish. Now listen, in the Greek, you can put things in what's called the active, the passive, or the middle voice. Active is the subject doing the action. The passive voice is the action being done to uh, to the person. And the middle voice is reflexive. I'm doing the action to myself. When Jesus said, and they will never perish, he put that in the middle voice, listen, and they shall never do anything to cause themselves to perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Guys, our faithfulness to hold on to him isn't the issue. The issue is his faithfulness and power to hold on to us eternal life is given the moment a person receives jesus and jesus is saying starting from that moment listen you will never perish and that's because god has you in his hands and is holding tightly and eternally onto you as a christian and again i hear these voices I'll get some help. I hear these voices, okay? Some Christians would respond, yes, but I can slip through his fingers. He's got me in his hands, sure, but you don't know me. I, I, I blow it so much, I could slip through his fingers and still be lost. One of my favorite old Bible teachers, Donald Gray Barnhouse, once famously said to a person who said this to him, you can't slip through his fingers because you are one of his fingers you are a member of his body i love the way he amplified trying to really be faithful to what the greek is expressing in john 10 verse 28 let me read it to you it comes through very forcefully okay and i give them eternal life and they shall never lose it or perish throughout the ages, to all eternity they shall never by any means be destroyed, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. One scholar, a Greek scholar, said uh, with regard to this, he said, the Greek is an emphatic double negative with second aorist middle subjunctive of apolumi to destroy. I don't know what that means. I had to look it up too. What I found out was that is the strongest Greek construction you can ever put something into in this context to say, look, if you're saved for real, you're saved forever. You're never going to be lost. There's nothing you can do to destroy yourself. You are completely secure. I mean, the Lord couldn't, through the Holy Spirit, made it any stronger a way of saying it. All these, yeah, but, no, no buts. Jesus said, you're secure. You're secure. Backslide, someone said, backslide, they may perish, they won't. Chastise you, he may. Disown you, he won't. Listen. And we talked about this last week, but eternal life by its very definition has to mean uninterrupted life that goes on for eternity. Listen from the moment it is received. That is God's promise to us based on, listen, his faithfulness, not ours. And guys, that's the great difference between the old covenant under Moses and the new covenant under Christ. The new covenant was built on better promises. As we said last week, the old covenant that God entered into with His people on Mount Sinai when Moses represented the nation. As we said last time, there are two promises, two kinds of promises in the Bible. You have what is called bilateral promises, which are a two-party contract or covenant. Bi means two. And then you have unilateral promises. Una means one. One-party contract or covenant or promise. Okay. The classic example of a two-party covenant or promise was when Moses, standing in place of Israel, entered into this covenant with the Lord, where if they were to, if they would obey him, because he said, look, uh, he said, you know, I just brought you out of Egypt. Happy to do it. Now, listen, I want to propose a covenant with you. Okay. I want you to be my people. I want to be your God. Now, if that sounds good to you, I would like to enter into this covenant. Oh, yeah, Lord, that sounds great. All right, Moses come up on top of the the mount, right? I'll give you the terms of the covenant, which the terms were what Israel had to fulfill or to keep, and then God would then do his part, which was to bless them beyond any nation on the face of the earth, right? And, uh, of course, their part was to keep the law. And God promised that if you keep my law, If you keep the terms of this covenant, I will bless you beyond any nation on the face of the earth. If you do not, if you break the covenant by not obeying what I've said, then I'm going to curse you. You can read Deuteronomy 27 and 28. So here's Moses, right? On top of the mountain, God's giving him the the Ten Commandments, the terms of the covenant. And uh, before he even gets down from the mountain, the people have broken the covenant by worshiping the golden calf, right? He hasn't even gotten down from the mountain yet. They've already broken the covenant. Look, any covenant, and this is where I'm going with this, any covenant of salvation, where man has a part in it to do anything, is doomed to failure, because we are not perfect, we are not fa- uh, faithful, we are prone to failure. If we were in there, if we were in the equation in any way, shape, or form, we're doomed. Years ago, when we first moved into the area. There was a restaurant not far from the house, and we used to go there, and uh, they had a a nautical theme. And as you're walking into the restaurant back then, they had a gigantic chain and anchor outside. I'm talking these links must have been six inches long and about an inch in diameter, and the anchor was massive. Anything that that chain and anchor was attached to uh, was secure. Okay. Now imagine, for the sake of illustration, I severed one of those links on that chain, and I inserted in its place a single strand of human hair, which now became one of the links of the chain. How secure do you think something like a ship would be that now had that chain attached to it? Not very secure at all. Because we all know a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Look, it doesn't matter how strong or faithful God is in keeping His promise. I know the problem is not God, okay? If He makes a promise, it's a sure thing. But if I have something to do in it to get it fulfilled, no, it's not a sure thing at all. God has promised to give us eternal life. I mean, okay, that's wonderful. But again, if we have a part to play in securing our salvation we're done we're doomed that's why the writer of the hebrews in chapter 6 verse 19 said this hope salvation eternal life is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls god's faithfulness to hold on to us is the idea both sure and steadfast and it leads us through the curtain into the inner sanctuary in other words when you are anchored to Christ in salvation, it's it's going to take you all the way into heaven someday, okay? Look at it, guys. The whole idea of the new covenant was to take the human link out of the chain and make salvation entirely dependent upon God's power and faithfulness. Last week we talked about what some have called the golden chain of salvation out of Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. Where Paul said, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called; whom he called, these he also justified; whom he justified, these he also glorified. We're not glorified yet, but in the mind of God, it's already happened. Past tense. Look, the golden chain of salvation. Romans eight twenty-nine and thirty. Every link, every truth in this chain relates to God and His faithfulness to keep His promise to us. He foreknew us. He predestined us. He called us. He justified us. He, done deal, will glorify us. He, 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 right? We are nowhere in the chain. Our faithfulness isn't a link found anywhere in that chain. Because, again, guys, the promise of eternal life was an unconditional, unilateral promise. If you weren't here last week, go online, listen to the teaching. We went into this in some detail because it's very important that we understand, okay, that God made a promise under the new covenant to give us eternal life. It was a unilateral, unconditioned, one-party promise covenant contract. It didn't depend on our faithfulness. Not like Israel you keep these commandments, I will... But bl- No. We had nothing to fulfill. We didn't have to do anything like keep commandments or go to church, light candles, um, keep sacraments, and so on. The promise that God made to us by simply us believing in His Son, we would have everlasting life. That's exactly why we are told in the book of Hebrews that the new covenant through Jesus is superior to the old covenant Covenant under Moses, Ephesians, Hebrews 8 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, talking about Jesus being the great high priest of the new covenant, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, yes, because it doesn't have our hands in it, that was established on better promises. You can read Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33. And then Hebrews 10.23, I love this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Remember we said last week, any hope connected to a promise of God, especially a promise regarding eternal life, is a sure thing. It's not an I hope so hope, it's an I know so hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. In other words, we put our faith in Christ for he, listen, who promised is faithful not about my faithfulness it's about God's faithfulness to keep the promise he gave us that if you believe in my son I will give you everlasting life now now, don't get me wrong the Bible encourages us to sincerely and honestly examine ourselves to make sure that we're really we really are Christians right I mean 2 Peter 1 10 examine yourself to make sure you're really in the faith uh, 1 Corinthians 11:31. Paul said, "Judge yourself right now. Take honest inventory that you won't have to be judged by God someday." Right? Didn't Jesus say you could turn to this one? Matthew 7. I'm not saying that we shouldn't examine ourselves. I'm not sh- saying that we, we shouldn't really make sure that we're, we're honest in our uh, faith, that we're not playing games with the Lord and calling ourselves Christians when we really uh, aren't. Because we're the only ones that are going to suffer because of that. If we are, of course, I don't really have to read this to you. You all know it, Matthew 7. Verses 21 to 23, where Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many uh, wonders in your name? And people say, well, see, because they lost their salvation. Well, verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I, what? never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness not i knew you for a while but you you didn't measure up you didn't you know you you know you you walked away from your salvation i never knew you these people were playing games they thought they were sincere they thought they were you know their but their christianity was not sincere they gave god lip service but they didn't really live a life that would indicate uh, saving faith in their heart. They, they didn't really live for him on a daily basis. Now, we all blow it, but I'm talking about not someone who just comes to church for a couple hour and then leaves here and goes out and just lives like an unbeliever because he or she is an unbeliever still, okay? And again, guys, we're, we're done. Let me just bring it to a close by saying, again, there are two kinds of promises in the Bible. As we just said, conditional, two-party promises unconditional unilateral um, and again all the promises that relate to eternal life are all unconditional promises in other words they don't depend on our faithfulness to do anything they simply depend on the faithfulness of one person God Almighty which means they are all again unconditional and so guys God made us as his children a promise a promise that if you really are one of his kids, you will never be disowned, you'll never get thrown out of the family. Back in John 6 and verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out throughout of the family. Verse 39, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing but should raise it up at the last day. Listen to me. Again we're done. Before God ever made you, he knew you. Before God ever made you, he knew you. He knew every sin you were ever going to commit, but you know what? It didn't matter when it came to your salvation. All that mattered was that he knew that someday you would believe in his son. And based on that, he chose you to be his child. Read Ephesians 1 verse 4 again. And now that you are his child, oh, how the devil loves to condemn us. He's lost us. But if he can condemn us when we stumble and fall, he can neutralize our effectiveness, right? Take us right out of the work of God. And I've said this before, let me say it again. We're all gonna stumble, we're all gonna fall as Christians. John said, if you you say you have no sin as a Christian, you deceive yourself. The truth is not in you, okay? We're, We're a work in progress. And when you fall, he stands ready to pick you up, dust you off, take you in his arms, and whisper in your ears, I forgive you, child. Now draw your strength from me, and I will teach you how to walk with me better every day in the spirit, in the future. reminds me of something I heard years ago. Let me read it to you. The young man came to my desk with a quivering lip. The lesson was done. Have you a new sheet for me, dear teacher? I've spoiled this one. I took his sheet, all spoiled and spotted, and gave him a new one, all unspotted. And into his tire heart, tired heart I cried, Now do better, do better now, my child. I went to the throne with a trembling heart. The day was done. Have you a new day for me, dear master? I've spoiled this one. He took my day, all spoiled and blotted, and gave me a new one, all unspotted, And into my tired heart he cried, Do better now, my child. You'll never hear him say to you if you're a child of God, Get out. I've had it with you. You're blowing it all the time. He's always working with us. Always getting us to look at our failures as a way to draw us closer to him. Look, say you were an orphan. Say you were orphaned when you were very young as a child. And say somebody adopted you and the first thing they did was to stand you before him or her and say now look i've adopted you but you're only going to be a member of this family if you continue to measure up if you blow it or you don't measure up every day and prove your worth to be in this family i'm going to throw you out as a kid how would that make you feel you'd be terrified wouldn't you terrified every single day that you had to work 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 if i didn't work i didn't prove my worth i was thrown out of the family now contrast that to this person who adopts you stands you before him or her and says i adopted you into this family i want you to know no matter what you do how badly you blow it you're never going to be thrown out of this family you will be a member of this family until the day you die and it doesn't matter how badly you blow it I want you to know I'm promising you that nothing you do will ever cause me to disown you or to cast you out of the family how do you think you'd feel now I don't know about you but I'd I'd be like wow that kind of love I just want to do my best to make this family proud of me not out of fear right out of a sense of overwhelming love, of the unconditional love of this person who has adopted me into this family and has told me no matter what I did, I would never be disowned. That's what God did with every one of us who are, well, all of us are adopted, the Bible says. And guys, believing that your salvation is eternal removes the devil's condemnation and sets you free To love God with the knowledge that he will never leave you nor forsake you. Or as John put it, 1 John 4.18, God's perfect love in Christ casts out fear. The fear of eternal judgment in hell. And frees me to live for the Lord out of joy, love, not fear. Because he'll never throw me out of the family. Because of that, I had the freedom to live for him and to honor him out of love. So may God get that in our hearts. You may be sitting there thinking, I know all this. Great. But the devil is going to try to challenge what you know. And he's going to try to get you to doubt what you know. But that's why we have to go to the word of God. And as Peter said, I'm going to put you in remembrance of what you already know so you don't forget when you need to remember it. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. It is truth. We thank you for your unconditional love and the promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us once we are your children. That you have promised us us regardless of how we blow it, our salvation, our, our membership in the family is secure. We thank you, Lord, because that it, it frees us from the condemnation of the devil to prove our worth every day. Thank you, Lord, that we have the, this incredible promise. And now, Lord, that you have promised to love us unconditionally, give us grace to love you unconditionally, and to serve you, Lord, with our whole heart, that we might be a light in this dark world and bring you glory. Father, we thank you. We ask you to keep... Blessing these studies in your word in Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen.